So if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 36. The worship guide, yes, does say that we will be looking at chapters 13 through 23, but while we're looking at 11 chapters, let's throw in another one or two. As we continue our study through the book of Isaiah, we have thus far, in the first 12 chapters, had a clear vision of God's holiness, a warning of God's judgment, the great compassionate message of God's mercy. We've seen promises to individuals as well as to nations. Promises that, well, some seem to be fulfilled earlier and then some have even yet to be fulfilled today. We've been reminded that we are to wait. We've got reason to wait, but wait nonetheless. And even as last week, Tim was able to help us understand clearly from God's word our need or to understand that God is truly the substance of our salvation. That God doesn't bring us salvation. God is salvation. That God doesn't bring us what we hope in. God is that which we hope in. And hopefully to the point where we're willing to even yet leave that red ball behind in our journey and our faith. Which is important for us even during this season. We, again, uh, of even different denominations, regardless of how faithful you remain to the word, at least we recognize this being the season of the passion. We consider the death of Christ. We consider the resurrection of Christ. And even in that, the resurrection, how much more hope and how much more promise have we been given through the resurrection, but yet we still have to wait it's a sure promise. It's an incredible hope. But we wait. And that is because it is impossible to please God apart from faith. It's, impo it's impossible to please God apart from a life of hope in Him. And for those of us who believe that not only that He is, but is also a rewarder of those who diligently seek after Him, we seek after Him with great hope. Even as we consider the book of Isaiah and any other portion of scripture that was written before the church, Romans 15, 4, Paul reminds us that those things which were written in former days were written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, including the book of Isaiah, we might have hope. There's that word again. You can't live the Christian life apart from hope. But we live in a world that seeks to destroy our hope. We, seek, we live in a world that seeks to displace our hope. To make little of our hope. To reject our hope. And in the midst of all of that, I trust that through the study of God's Word today, we will overcome those efforts of the world, of the enemy, and even our own flesh, that our hope would remain firm in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking him for help now. Father, uh, we certainly did not imagine or create any such wonderful thing like your word. 
You have been so gracious and merciful and good to give it to us. And we come, Lord, now depending on nothing but your word, knowing that it is your Holy Spirit that provided those words originally and continue to teach us today and will be that same spirit that will bring it to fruition in days to come. So, Father, Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear to the point of obedience. I pray that you give us eyes to the point where we can see and understand. I pray that you give us a heart to love your commandments and to do them. I pray that we would find our hope secure in God. That we would find the work of Jesus Christ sufficient. That we would find the pleasures that you provide enough to the point where we rejoice all the day long. Help us, Lord, now as we study. Lord, may it not be so much the words that are spoken well, but, Lord, that the word would be presented clearly so that we would understand and our faith would grow. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah is writing, as we saw in chapter 1, during the reign of four different kings. We have King Uzziah, who was a good king. However, at the end of his life, he tried to act like a priest and wound up a leper and died in that condition. His son Jotham was also a good king. But as good as Jotham was, he allowed the nation of Israel or the land of Judah to remain in a land of idols. He left the high places where they could still go and worship at their, at their discretion. His son Ahaz, however, was not a good king. We were, back in chapter 7, uh, reminded of King Ahaz and how not only was he a bad king for Judah, but he was also a poor steward of the temple in which in his alliance with Assyria... Uh, made use of the, the gold-covered furniture and the beautiful pieces that were intended to worship God, he allowed that to be used in the, the temples in the worship of the gods of the Assyrians, which certainly did not create a great atmosphere for the people of Judah. And then we have his son, uh, who we will talk a little bit more about uh, today as well. But when we think about the alliances, let's get into the... Context, and that's the reason why we're starting in chapter 36. It's, it's not a good idea to look at the book of Isaiah and think that when you start in chapter 1, you're beginning a chronology. That you're beginning a story that has a beginning point and, and the, the facts just start pouring in and that brings you to the end of the story. Because while there may be some instances where that's true, it's better that you look at it from a thematic perspective. In other words, you look at how Isaiah collects certain themes together and then uh, hope to address how the Holy Spirit is going to teach and interpret that and apply it to our lives accordingly. So while we will spend our time focusing on Isaiah 13 through 23, it's helpful for us that as Isaiah at the end of his presentation in this section wraps it up with the context. So here in chapter 36, we read, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, who was Ahaz's son, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. 
He stood by the conduit of the upper field and the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joat, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him from Hezekiah. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is the confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely who you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a crushed, if a, I'm sorry, Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and we do not, we, and do not speak with us in Judea in the hearing of the people who were on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words, and not the whole men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rebshekah stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will, not let you be able to, he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat uh, each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his hand or his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Severim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they were silent, answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the threshold, or over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. I can't relate to that. I live in a land of peace. Even though the country in which I live has been engaged with an enemy for over a decade in another part of the world, it hasn't really affected my life. I haven't served. I don't have anybody encroaching upon my doorsteps. I don't have people with uh, you know, heavy armor and tanks rolling down the street as I'm coming home for work or as I'm going out to, to do business. 
My life is not in shambles. I live in a prosperous land. God has been gracious. And I look around my life and see that I've got so many things that enhance life. But the land was not so in Hezekiah's day in Judah. The world, as it were, was in shambles. It was so much so that even the more powerful nations couldn't hold on to power long enough before another one came and stripped them of theirs and it became someone else's. That land was being fought over and Judah just happened to be in the crosshairs of everything. You've got Egypt to the south. You've got Assyria to the northeast. You've got all the nations in between trying to protect themselves. And here in chapter 36 of the book of Isaiah, which is also recorded for us in the book of 2 Kings, almost word for word, we have the leader of Assyria coming before Hezekiah to make a deal. Which is interesting in and of itself because Assyria supposedly had the upper hand. They had the great army, but yet they're coming to Hezekiah to say, Hezekiah, don't waste your time. Because after all, even if you're a great army, you'd like to save as much as your strength and as much as your resources as you can. You don't want to waste them on something that's going to, you know, just, well, it may not take very long to overcome this people. You don't want to waste your resources on it. You'd rather them just to go ahead and give in. In other words, he was seeking to make an alliance. After all, Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, had basically done that already. And instead of seeking the alliance that Samaria, those in Damascus, were wanting the, the, in Israel, uh, the, fall, the nation, to the, the, the lands of the ten tribes of the north, they tried to get Ahaz to make a, a pact with them so that they could fight Assyria instead of joining with Egypt, who was a weakening power at this time. But Ahaz said, forget that. I'm just going to go ahead and make a deal with Assyria myself. And even if it means taking all the furniture out of the temple, we're going, to, you know, we're going to use that and let them know that we're on good terms. Thinking that making a deal with the enemy was, making a, uh, was better than making a deal with those who were eventually going to fall themselves. When we think of alliances in our day, oftentimes we think of them in business terms. At least I do because that's part of the realm in which I live. You know, alliance is a relationship that you have with someone where you understand that the assets that you have aren't really enough to, to fulfill the potential that you want. So you try to find somebody else who can help meet that, who has their own assets that aren't completely you know, able to, sufficient in themselves to do everything. So you try to come together. You, you don't become one. It's not a merger. It's not a legal thing, but you just sort of agree to help each other out. In the airline industry, which I'm familiar with, it gives an airline like I work for that doesn't have flights all over the place and, and, and passengers and customers all over the world. We make alliances with other airlines who do. And what we do is we cooperate and we say, you know what, we'll allow your customers to do business with us as if they were doing it with you so that our customers can do business with you as if they're doing it with us. In other words, it's a win-win. We get to keep loyalty with our customers. They get to have the, the experience that they could get all over the world. Now, if you think of it in other terms, uh, this past week I was listening uh, through a uh, Renewing Your Mind podcast of a, of a gentleman who came to know Christ through, a, through being in prison. Uh, he was raised sort of in church, but he grew up uh, to become a, a drug dealer uh, as a military officer, uh, wound up in jail. Uh, but he was talking about how in prison 
you make alliances or you don't survive very well because you're at the mercy of one of the two for protection. You don't want to find yourself in the middle. So even in a very dire sense, alliances are very important. While you may not necessarily want identify completely with one group, you certainly want to say, hey, I'm on your side. And you're going to pick whichever one you think is going to win. I think even seriously during the, the upheaval, when you think about the 1930s, uh, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in, it, it wasn't a very prosperous time. It wasn't a very great time. Uh, and particularly when you think about Europe and, and, the, and the environment that was taking place in the, in the 1930s, I have to remember to say 19 because we're getting really close to another century with the 30s in it, right? So the 1930s, where it gave fascist rulers the, the ability to, to, to win people over because they were so desperate to find something to help them get out of the life that they were living, that they would listen to anything. And if they had any hope whatsoever that someone, regardless of how treacherous they may be to other people, if at least on their side, my life will get better. That's a very dangerous place to be, is it not? And we look back at what has happened in our world since then and what took place over the next decade, even through the mid-40s. And we think about all the subsequent actions over the past three or four decades that are a result of that type of thinking and that type of action. But here, back in Judah, very similar to that what was taking place in, in Europe. You've got nations that are struggling for power. You've got nations that are struggling to gain control. You've got nations that are fighting against each other so that they can win the day. Now Ahaz again had decided to form his own alliance with Assyria, even though God had given him an option out. God said, let me give you a sign. Ahaz said, you know what? I don't want to test you, God. As a matter of fact, I would just rather do my own thing. Now, when we come... To Isaiah, in chapter 36, we see Ahaz's son's situation. What is he going to do now? Hezekiah has been brought this message. But Hezekiah has been brought this message with much, if not all, of what we're about to look at in chapters 13 through 23. So if you will just kind of flip back. We're going to come back to Isaiah chapter 37 to see the rest of the story. But first, let's take a quick look. And I mean quick. And that's going to be a benefit to the preacher because this is hard stuff. So if we do through it quick, you won't notice just how much I don't understand. <laughs> and it's going to be so quick that you're going to take my word for it and you're going to say, great, we've went through you know, 11 chapters and we're all good. Hopefully that's not the case. We do have, when we come to chapter 13, when we come to so many other passages in the book of Isaiah, we're reminded of what God told Isaiah when he called him into ministry saying, this is going to be a difficult message for people to hear. They're not going to understand it because I'm not going to let them. The more you preach, the less they're going to understand. And sometimes when we read through, if you're doing it through a yearly, you know, I'm reading through the Bible, or maybe you're you know, just reading through the book of Isaiah, and you're looking through and saying, what in the world? I don't understand any of this. I as soon as you start reading three or four verses and you say, ah, oh, I'm starting to get it, and then... Here come, where did that come from? What does that mean? 
And there are some interpretive challenges that come along with the book of Isaiah. I'll be the first to note it. Now, I have to admit to you that I was raised and trained in such a way where I thought dogmatically I knew everything. I could put every verse and fit it somewhere, whether it be in the past, present, future. I could fit it somewhere. And the more I study it, the more I'm like, God, please help me. And it's just because of that. There are things that are literally fulfilled in the lifetime of Isaiah. And you say, okay, there you go. When Isaiah says something, it's going to happen in his lifetime. And then you get to another part and say, wait a minute, it didn't happen yet. Because it's talking about, we've even had messages about it. It's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus Christ who didn't live until about eight centuries later. And then we think about, here we go back, and then he's talking about something about Babylon. Now, is that Babylon, the new Babylon? Is that the old Babylon? Is this, what is it? And, and, it's, and it's, it can be somewhat confusing. So, hopefully, from that sense, in a very weak, humanistic sort of way, that having a fast path through this, we'll say, man, that's good, because we certainly don't, even though, I'm capable of preaching long enough to try to get through a good understanding of 11 chapters in Isaiah that we won't. However, we do want to look, and just as I mentioned earlier, we don't want to look at the book of Isaiah so much as a chronology from the beginning to the end, telling a story from from one end to the other. But these chapters, and all the way through chapter 35, There are sections, and in 13 through 23, we have a section that is uh, kind of identified as oracles. Uh, Your translation may even have the word oracle in several places as it's being addressed to different nations. Some of you may have a translation which is, that says burden. Same word, translated a different way. It comes from the idea of being lifted up or carried. So, so in other words, we can have a safe understanding that when it's, when it's an oracle or when it's a burden, it's a heavy, it's a weighty message. And in this section, these weighty messages, these heavy, burdensome messages have the nations around Israel, around Judah in mind. Now that doesn't mean that the message itself was directed so that Isaiah was going to go to Babylon and preach to Babylon. If he was going to go to Damascus, he was going to preach to Damascus. Or if he's going to Ethiopia, he's going to preach to Ethiopia. These messages were given so that the children of God could understand what God is saying in judgment and in mercy towards these nations. So that they could get an understanding of what God is up to. In other, in other words, it's really important for us to understand that God has been sovereign from the very beginning and will always be sovereign to the very end and even outside those parentheses of time. That God is sovereign. And in this section, what we're going to look at today is God is the sovereign Lord over the nations. Now, getting back to the non-chronology approach, we basically see Isaiah beginning in the east, and sort of making a sweep across westward to different nations. So these aren't going to be, okay, well, this oracle concerning Babylon is going to happen first, and then the oracle concerning Assyria is going to happen next. It's not that at all. But he's just sort of sweeping as he's, again, presenting God's word regarding these other nations in a way that his people could understand that God's in control. You may look around you and see all these nations fighting, 
All these nations making their alliances with one another so they can beat the other one, so they can defend themselves. But God's sovereign over all that. Which is so helpful, isn't it? So that when we sing a song that says, uh, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver and shield my, against his hateful darts, my song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are abounding, your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. God's people needed to understand in the midst of all the calamity that was going on in their world that he alone is sovereign. That he alone has ordered these things. That he alone has a purpose and a plan for these things. And that every nation, regardless of who they are, regardless of how close they are to him, regardless of how much they acknowledge his existence or not, regardless of how powerful they are, that God has orchestrated it all. That our security lies not in the fact that we are comfortable all the time, but in our discomfort, God is in control. That not that we're going to have everything that we want, but in our lack, God is all of our substance. Not that we will never have any despair, but in all of our anxiety, God is our everlasting peace. Through it all. So, having said all of that, in chapter 13, we see this oracle concerning Babylon. Now Babylon, in and of itself, we could take a weekend seminar, Pastor Charlie, and just talk about what in the world does Babylon mean and how does it fit in all aspects of Scripture because we've got literal Babylon, we've got spiritual Babylon, we've got the origin of Babylon back in Genesis chapter 11. You know, you can think of all different types of ways where Babylon comes into play. But the message that we want to look at just real quickly here is that in this particular chapter, chapter 13, there are two references to the day of the Lord, verses 6 and verse 9. The day of the Lord in the New Testament and the Old Testament alike refers to God being near, usually in judgment. When we think about the day of the Lord, we're not looking at one 24-hour period. We're looking at the time in which God is going to visit the earth. Again, usually in judgment. And Babylon, as I sort of referred to just a moment ago, because of its spiritual application to the world system in which we live from the very beginning, it is symbolic, if nothing else, of the world in which we live coming towards a day of judgment that is the day of the Lord. In this very specific sense, it becomes even more complicated because in chapter, or chapter 14, God, as he judges Babylon, in whatever context we fit that in, <laughs> whether it be spiritual or literal, whether it be in Isaiah's day or in the future, I know this is a lot, but however we fit that, God is going to allow his people a season, for lack of a better term, to taunt. To say to Babylon, hey, I thought you were a big guy. 
It's kind of like the one who's being bullied having his day when, he is, when the bully is taken to the principal's office. And the guy who's been bullied all this time goes by the principal's office. Hey, you're not a big guy anymore, are you? There's going a day when God's people are going to look at all of their enemies and say, how big are you now? Because now they're going to be in the judgment of God. And within that taunting, if you will, and the reason I'm using that is because a lot of other scholars have used it before me. I didn't just come up with it. But the reason, one of the reasons why they're toning is because of their leader. There's a reference, and you may be familiar with this, uh, that there's a mention of the king of Babylon falling. That there is, in verse 12, if you will, of chapter 14, just look at that very carefully. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn, You've been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will, in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And you may have heard this being a description of Satan's fall. Now it's kind of difficult if that's the interpretation you want to take from this, even though it would match a description that is close to what Ezekiel more clearly talks about Satan's fall, or even Jesus when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Because even with the, this is one of those prime examples of where it's hard to figure out. Is he talking about something that's happened in the past? Is he talking about something that's going to happen in the future? Is he speaking about a spiritual Babylon, which is sort of anti-God from all of the days of mankind? Or is this like the literal nation of Babylon and their king who exalted himself? And you think back at how did Babel get started? Well, you think they tried to build a tower to, to reach to God and God confused their language to scatter them, right? So it's almost been part of their, their existence. And when you look at the book of Revelation, it only gets more complicated as you see kind of descriptions of Babylon and, and it falling. The final word that we want to say about that is regardless of how you take it, just understand that that which is against God, whether it be Satan or whether it be the nations that are against God in this world, they will fall. And they will be judged. Now again, there are little aspects of this where we see Babylon being defeated. If you recall Daniel, Daniel was taken away in the captivity by who? The Babylonians. But it was while they were having a great feast that a big hand started writing on the wall telling of the doom that was about to happen at the hands of of the Medes and the Persians who are about to overtake Babylon. And so, is that what Isaiah is talking about here? Probably. Is that everything that Isaiah is talking about? Probably not. However, God is giving a word to his people to let them know that whatever you think of Babylon, whatever the people of God thought of Babylon at that time, God's got it covered. He goes on to talk about the Assyrians, in verse 24 of chapter 14, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned it, so it will stand to break Assyria in my, in my land. 
So even Assyria is going to fall under the judgment of God. Philistia, chapter 14, verse 29. We have another word against them, that they should not take confidence in David's fall. That's probably, the more I study, the more I'm convinced. When I say convinced, I use that word lightly. But I'm convinced that that's probably talking about the fall of David's throne. Seemingly having fallen and, and Philistia should not take confidence. Hey, well those, remember because they remember David. They remember Goliath and they remember who won. And God's just warning them, say, hey, don't take comfort in the fact that the one who defeated you is so weak and frail right now. Why? Because their God's still on the throne. He's still sovereign. In chapter 15, we have an oracle for Moab. Uh, devastation. There's so much when you read through chapter 15 and 16, talk, looking at Moab's devastation, it almost breaks your heart. To think about how destructive God's judgment will be on these people. And it will happen just like overnight. Damascus in chapter 17. There's language that talks about how they're going to be stripped bare. Like the fruit trees are just going to have just enough. I mean, as if you walk through an orchard, an apple orchard. And the only thing that was left out there were just a, a few apples on the top of the tree that nobody could reach. And the only reason why they didn't get that is because they couldn't reach them. I mean, it's just going to be pillaged. It's going to be stripped bare. However, we do see that in that particular oracle that there will be uh, verse 7, out of that devastation, there's some hope. 17, verse 7, in that day man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look at that which his fingers have made. Even the ashram and incense stands. In that day their strong cities will be like forsaken places and forests. In other words, they're going to be so desperate and so depraved that they will finally look to God. And sometimes that's what it takes. Wait a minute. That's always what it takes. Now we might not lose everything. But in order for us to come to a holy righteous God. We better come with our hands empty. We better come as if it were even the things that we own. And all the things that we have. And all the resources that we enjoy. And all the conveniences that we use in our life. They're nothing. But yet Damascus is going to be brought to the point where that's going to be their only option. Ethiopia in chapter 18. Egypt chapter 19. Interesting thing about Egypt is it seems like particularly when you look in 2 Kings and you look at the history of, of the southern tribes and even the northern tribes for a particular time, they all thought that Egypt was going to be the one to help them. When the, when the nations from the north, like Assyria, were coming, or the Syrians were coming, they always said, hey, the Egyptians are going to be who's going to save the day. No offense, Ramon. Sorry. For why? Egypt used to be a really great power, but when they started their internal problems, they became weak. When they experienced civil wars, as God prophesied here, they became useless to the other nations. But interestingly enough that even here in chapter 19, 
Look at verses 23 and 25. In that day will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Blows your mind. Here's one of those passages you're reading along. It looks like it's all historically uh, you know, being fulfilled. You see all these things addressing all the issues of the current day in, in which Isaiah was living. And then you have something. Now in that day, is that a spiritual day? Is that a literal day? I mean, there's going to be a highway. Today we like to build beltways around cities, right? So that people can easily maneuver around and, and get around and get to where they go quicker. Can you imagine... With all the turmoil that's going on in the Middle East right now, that there's going to be a highway that's going to connect the worshipers in Egypt to the worshipers who are in what's in Iran and Iraq today? There's going to be a highway where they're going to be worshiping together. That's going to be a pretty incredible day, would you not say? In chapter 20, referring back to Egypt's doom, God reminding that they're going to be marching into captivity. You see? Like the way it goes back and forth. He tells you about what it's going to be like in the future, but before that happens, they're going to be marching with nothing. And God thought that was such an important message to make that he told Isaiah to preach in your pajamas to give them a visual of what those Egyptians are going to look like as they're marching into captivity. Be hard enough for God to say, I want you to preach, they're not going to listen to what you have to say, and you're not going to have any believers, but also there's going to be a period of time where he wants you to preach without all your clothes on. But Isaiah was faithful because he believed in the word of God. However, we go back to Babylon in chapter 21. Then we have in chapter 21 in verses 11 and 12, Edom. Which the name Edom literally means silence. And that's the reason why it's very interesting that what they are saying in verses 11 and 12, uh, now, they're asking the watchman, when's it going to be day? When's it going to be day? They're anxious. They know something's coming. But there's silence. And then in verses 13 through 17, Arabia. Which is sort of a play on words because in the Hebrew that sounds like the same word that means at evening. Indicating there will be people who at nighttime will be running away knowing that danger is coming. Then we have the Valley of Vision in verse 20, or chapter 22. And ultimately, what happens there, there will be people, and God gives them a picture through Isaiah and says, it's kind of like having a door hook or, or a clothes hook on, on outside your door. And when you come in, you know, you, put your, you, you hang your coat up on it or you hang your purse on it if you're a lady or something like that. And God says you're hanging all of your hopes on this one hook. At the end of the day, the hook's going to fall off the wall. You're going to realize that you placed all of your hope in the wrong thing. And then we have Tyre and Sidon, who God equates basically to a, like being a prostitute who does what they do for money. But there's even a message of hope there, in which he says there's coming a day when all the things that you do for money are actually going to go to the service of God. Only God can redeem that sort of life. 
So you have all of these messages. You have all of this which, is, which Isaiah is preaching. You're living in this world of turmoil. You've got nations that are fighting against each other and they're doing it in your backyard as they go back and forth. And they're threatening to take you over as well. And then you have Hezekiah, who in chapter 36 gets this message from the Reb Shekha, the representative of the king, who's been telling all the people in a language that they can all understand. <laughs> you're not going to trust in Egypt, are you? And I know you're not going to trust in the God, because what other nation's gods has saved them? Your God's not going to save you. Well, in chapter 37 of Isaiah... When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rebshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. And you're very familiar probably with the rest of the story. Hezekiah goes and he lays out all these letters before God. And he prays to God something that I hope that we can relate to because perhaps it's a prayer that you have said similar in your own heart, in your own life. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, all the kings of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Verse 17, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. And they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Hezekiah had faith that God was sovereign over all the other nations. What does this response beckon us to do? I think we need to make three observations. I'll make these very quick. First, we need to recognize that the sovereign Lord will have his day of reckoning. If we learn nothing else from this quick flyby, let us understand that the Lord who is sovereign will have his day of reckoning and the nations, all of them, including the one that we live in today, will be held accountable to him and to him alone. There's a day of reckoning coming. The second observation is that the sovereign Lord will ensure that good is done. He will ensure that good is done. There will not be anything that slips past his control. There will not be any evil that will be out from his outstretched arm. But he will ensure that good is done, whether it be through judgment of that which is evil, or whether it be through mercy on that which he chooses to show it. 
We live in this season in which we are rejoicing in this very thing that God has accomplished both the judgment of evil and the mercy on the cross for us. If you're here this morning, if you're listening to these words, please understand that the sovereign Lord is doing good and He did it on the cross. He did it by judging our sin. He laid it upon His shoulders. He took his, our cross and He died our death. He judged evil. God has done good through that, but He has also done good in extending His mercy and grace to us so that we can be children of God. So that we can have the hope of eternal life. So that we can rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. So that we can be freed to live the life of good that God created us to do for His glory. And then the third observation is the sovereign Lord is not interested at all in alliances. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Doesn't God want us to be on his side? God is not interested in alliances. God is interested in submission and devotion. God needs no co-pilots. God doesn't need to add on what we can't provide for ourselves. God didn't deliver Israel out of Egypt to be his partner. There were no assets that God was lacking that somehow the people of God could provide for him to accomplish his work. And he's calling us to no less today. He's not asking me, hey, Mark... You want to join me in my work because I, I could use some help. I, I think that you could actually kind of cover some areas where I'm not really relevant. I mean, some people find me offensive and maybe you could kind of be a softening blow for some people. No. Mark, you know what? You're really creative in this area, which we know. That's not true. But God, you're really creative in this area. And there's some ways that you might be able to communicate. And maybe my word's not enough. And so maybe you could come alongside me and you could be kind of the introductory act and then I would come in and kind of sweep everybody off their feet. No. God's not interested in alliances. God didn't call Hezekiah to say, Hey, Hezekiah, you know what? I'll be on your team. And Hezekiah knew that because he understood that God and God alone was his salvation. He knew that God and God alone was sovereign over the nations and only he could provide help. So with that in mind, as Richard and Heather, I hope, will plan to come and lead us in singing. What grace is mine? What is that grace for? That grace is to lead us to do whatever God has called us to do. Not to be his partner, but to do whatever he's called us to do as his servant. So I hope that you will be encouraged as you sing prayerfully to God as they lead us. And then Pastor Charlie will come and close our service.